any of us get to preach the word because we are unworthy. For being honest with you this morning, I'm a man unworthy to handle the word of God. However, he is worthy. And I, I was brought a little bit to tears as we were singing that song, All Hail King Jesus. The Lord of heaven and of earth, he is worthy. He has blessed us in more ways than I could ever count or imagine because he loves us and he is good and he is a righteous king. We don't preach from our own authority. We preach from the authority of the word of God, the authority that comes from the king. And so I, I hope that this morning as you hear the word preach that you wouldn't just pay attention to my words because they have very little meaning, but that you would pay attention to what the word of God is saying to you today. And we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're continuing our time in 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you all do. If not, there's Bibles in front of you in your chairs. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as you do so, I wanted to share a poem with you all. Now, this isn't normal for me. I'm not a poet. I, uh, it's, it's not my forte. However, as I was preparing for this sermon, there was a story that came to my mind that I remembered from a young age, and, and I only remembered some of the particulars of it, and so I, uh, I went on Google and was like, where, where do I remember this story from? It fits the message, but I, I want to remember this story, so I was you know, just searching up keywords, and it took me about a half an hour, and I found it was a poem, and I remember I heard this poem when I was in middle school, and it's a, a cute little poem, so I thought I'd share it with you all as it has meaning for what we are going to be talking about today. So this poem is called Smart by Shel Silverstein. You may have heard of this, but it's a beautiful, cute little poem. Let me read. My dad gave me one dollar bill, because I'm his smartest son. And I swapped it for two shiny quarters, because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and I traded them to Lou, for three dimes, I guess he didn't know that three is greater than two. Just then, along came old blind Bates. And just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes, and four is more than three. Then I took the nickels to old Harem Coombs down at the seed feed store, and the fool gave me five pennies for them, and five is more than four. So I went and showed my dad, and he got red in the cheeks. And he closed his eyes and shook his head, too proud of me to speak. <laughs> I thought that was an adorable poem, and I was, I was glad that I was able to archive that for my old memories of middle school. It's a cute poem, and, and it's about, you know, he's a small boy, a little naive, and he, he doesn't understand the value of what he has. He doesn't understand the value of the dollar that his father gave him, and he trades it away for something less because he was fixated on the wrong thing. He was fixated on the numbers of his objects. So, oh, if I have two quarters, that's more than one dollar because he didn't understand the value of what he had. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and, and here we see that Israel cries out for a king. What happens here is that Israel does not understand the value they have. And they trade what they have for something less. Because they also are fixated on the wrong thing. Church, today I hope that 
that we spend some time dwelling on what we have. Not to trade it for anything lesser, but that while we hear the preaching of the word, while we are here worshiping the Savior, that we would be fixated on the King, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, guide our hearts and our minds today to see clearly the goodness of your mercy. To see clearly how great a king you are, Lord, that that you came for us to pay the price of our sin that we could have life with you. Lord, you are so good to us. And don't let us be distracted by the things of this world. Don't let us be distracted by the pleasures of our flesh. Lord, I know even here on a Sunday morning, I, I find the temptation so easy to let my mind wander to other things. What am I gonna eat for lunch? What am I gonna watch later? And I, I care so much about my comfortability. Lord, do not let these distractions get in the way today, but let us as a church see your goodness and your value and fix our eyes on you. Guide us in your word, Lord, that we would treasure you deeper. We pray these things in the holy name of Jesus our King, amen. So here in 1 Samuel chapter eight, I'm gonna describe real quick the the story so far. We've been preaching through this series and as you know, Israel in past weeks we covered was in a pretty bad state. Israel was not doing well, they were not following God and, and the glory of God had departed from them when they came across battle against the Philistines. They lost that battle. The ark of the Lord was taken. They became weak and lowly. And this is normal state for Israel. We know the cycle that Israel goes through. They go through good times when they're following God and then they turn on God and they go through this weak, lowly state where things aren't good for their nation and, and they need to cry back out to God. And luckily in chapter seven, they do so. The ark of the Lord returns to Israel, not by any of their strength or their power, but because God had moved. God had moved as the ark was traveling throughout the, the areas of the Philistines and he brought his ark back to Israel. And finally, in chapter seven, they lament. They cry out to God, and he restores them. He, he puts for them a leader in Samuel who is to call them into repentance. And that's what he does. In chapter seven, Samuel, he calls Israel to, to Mizpah. This is this area that Israel gathers whenever they're to repent. We see this throughout the book of Judges, that when Israel as a nation, all the different tribes come together at Mizpah, this is where they make decisions that are important, this is where they fast, this is where they pray, and this is where as a whole gathered nation, they submit to God. And so they do that in chapter seven. They gather to Mizpah and Samuel leads them in prayer and in fasting and repentance as they cry out their sins to God. And while this is happening, the Philistines gather around them. Now remember, they had been losing battles against the Philistines consistently because they were not following God. And I wonder here if, on the Philistines' perspective, maybe this is a strategic move. Maybe they're thinking, all right, Israel's all gathered in one place. This is the time to strike. We can get them all in one go. And so they surround Mizpah, and, and they aim to attack Israel while they're all gathered there. But I wonder if there's a different motive there. This isn't clear in the text. We're not given this detail. But obviously, the Philistines had seen God move. When the ark was traveling through their, their land... They saw God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, strike down their areas, plague their people, 
and they had attributed power to this God. They also knew from past times that whenever Israel was in a good state with God, that means the Philistines were going to lose. And so I wonder if the Philistines' mindset is, oh no, if Israel is all gathered at Mizpah, that means that they're repenting. That means that they're getting right with God, and if that's the case, we're in trouble. So maybe this is a strike to, to nip it in the bud before they, they depend on the Lord for strength. However, they're late in their conclusion because the repenting already happened. The Lord was leading Israel, and so the Philistines come to gather around Mizpah and attack, and Israel cries out to Samuel to cry out to God for them and represent them. And so in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, that's what he does. Samuel does not cease to cry to the Lord for them. He takes a suckling lamb in verse 9, and he offers it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and he cries out to the God of Israel, and the Lord answered him. The Lord answers Samuel. What happens next is beautiful. Verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah. They pursued the Philistines, and they struck them down. Now, before that happened, watch how God acts. Verse 10, we're told that as the Philistines drew near, the Lord thundered with a great thunder. And on that day against the Philistines, they were confused. And then Israel pursued them. So notice that the battle was not won by Israel. Who won the battle? Say it again. Who won the battle here? God. That's right. He's the one fighting for them. When they cried out to him, he's the one who thundered. He's the one who confused the Philistines. He's the one who led them. Apart from God's actions, Israel would not win this battle. God wants to make clear to the nation of Israel, he's the one who fights for them. What happens next is, is they win this battle and not only that, for the rest of the days that Samuel leads Israel and judges over them, we're told that that the hand of the Lord stayed against the Philistines. And so the Philistines never won another battle while Samuel was in charge. Never won another battle. And, And during that time, we're told in chapter seven that peace was restored between Israel and the Amorites. It's another enemy of Israel. So now the Philistines, one of their main rivals, completely done away with. For the entire time Samuel leads, not a problem. The Amorites, there's now peace between them. And we're told that cities were restored to Israel that the Philistines had. And so, again, an example of when God is leading Israel, things are prosperous. When God is fighting for Israel, battles are won. It's clear to them, clear to the point that Samuel makes a a, a monument, he makes an Ebenezer, and he puts it up to remind them that the Lord won the battle. Then we come to chapter 8. Some time passes after this that Samuel is judge over them and leads them in the Lord. And it came about that Samuel became old in chapter 8. And he had two sons who, who he appointed as judges in specific areas. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and they took bribes and perverted justice. And so Israel decides that they have a different plan. They want something better. And so they come to Samuel in verse five and they say, behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, Samuel, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Israel here cries out 
for a king. I want to be clear about something. It's not necessarily wrong for Israel to desire a king. In fact, God had foretold about a king in Deuteronomy and Genesis on multiple passages. In, in Genesis 35:11, God says, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, Israel, and kings shall come forth from you. So obviously, God had a plan for a future king for Israel. So it's not necessarily wrong for Israel to want a king. It's why they wanted a king that's the problem. You see, they weren't paying attention to God's successes. They were paying attention to man's failures. And that was part of the motivation of why they wanted a king. In just the past chapter, this immediate context, we see God miraculously winning battles for them. And, and they've seen this throughout their history. God's the one who rescued them out of Egypt. God's the one who, who won the battle for Gideon of 300 men versus tens of thousands. And God's the one who put the Philistines down and caused peace with the Amorites. Yet, they look at Samuel, who's leading them, and they say, Samuel's gotten old. He can't lead us anymore. His sons aren't walking in his ways. They're looking at the men that are leading them, and they're not looking at the God who is leading them. Their assumption is it's these men who are doing the work and not God. And so, they miss out on the value they have, and they want something else. They ask for a king. But not just a king, they, they make this command, give us a king, but we want a king to judge us like all the nations. Yeah, uh-oh. That's the problem. They don't just desire God to rule over them, they desire to be like the other nations. And that was not the purpose of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. He's the one who, who's done all this work to set them apart, and he wanted them to be holy, to be a set-apart nation, to represent him, to show that when he rules, the God of Yahweh is the one true God, and he wanted Israel to be a light to the other nations, and their constant desire is to imitate and be like these other nations. And we see that here. They don't want a king to rule them the way that God ruled them, they want a king like the other nations. They want man to rule over them. This is a great dilemma. Samuel becomes displeased with this, and he prays to the Lord, and the Lord's not happy about this either. We come to verse seven, the Lord responds to Samuel, and he says, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me, from being king over them. God makes clear that this desire of theirs is not a rejection of Samuel as a leader. It's not a rejection of the, the judge uh, system that was in place. It's a rejection of God himself leading over them because they want a man like the other nations. He goes on in verse eight, like all the deeds which they have done since this day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Israel's desire for a king is attributed to idol worship. It's similar to them desiring the same kind of worship that the other nations have. It's the same kind of desire that, oh, what they have looks a lot better than what we have. And again, I, I look back to that poem of that, that boy who says, wow, I have this dollar, but I want those two quarters, because he didn't understand the value of what he had, he traded it for something less, except Israel does not have the excuse of, of being naive. 
Israel does not have the excuse of being young and impressionable. Israel should know better. And so what God does is he shows them a bit of mercy and grace, as he always does. And he gives them a warning of what's to come if they have a worldly king. In verse 11, he says to them, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots. And among his horsemen, they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands into fifties, some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and he will use them for his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer on that day. God in his mercy delivers a message to Israel of a warning saying, you have this option. Allow me to rule over you as king or seek out your desires. Seek out what you think is right. Have a worldly king and this is what's gonna happen. He is going to take from you and take and take and take your possessions, your belongings, your children, your your fellow man, your, your donkeys, all of these things will be his and they will be used for his servants and his glory and his work. That's what this king is going to do. All God has ever done for Israel is give. This king will take. You'd think with this warning they would have some common sense or some kind of repentance looking back on history as to how God has led them and looking forward as to what will happen if they have a worldly king, but that's not what happens. In verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You want a worldly king to fight your battles? Have you not seen what happens when God fights your battles? Who's stronger than God? Who can move mountains? Who can win a battle with 300 men against tens of thousands? Who can break down the walls of Jericho? Only God. And they say, no, we want a king to fight for us. It doesn't make sense. They have no concept of the value of what they have. And they are trading it for something much, much less They have been warned. They don't heed that warning. They're fixated on the wrong thing. They're fixated on on right here, right now, what are these other nations doing, and this is what I can see. I've heard stories of how God's acted in the past, but right now in front of me, this is what I want. They're not fixing their eyes on God. This decision ends up being the downfall for Israel in a lot of ways. See, the God, gives them, God gives them into this decision in verse 22. He tells Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. I've warned you. I've given you preparation. I told you what will happen. If this is what you want, I'm going to give it to you. 
You can have it. But you're going to cry out to me. Just you wait. Because the Lord is king. And we see that the kingly line is not a successful thing. David, who we're going to see in 1 Samuel, is the king that God raises up. And he's really the only successful king. And he still has many, many problems. Apart from that, after that, the the kingly line really falls apart. Israel ends up divided into two nations, a northern and southern Israel. They're taken into captivity in Babylon. Egypt comes up after them, and it's all distress and agony, and the the temple gets, gets destroyed. I mean, all these awful things happen to Israel because they made this decision that they want a worldly king over God. So the kingly line seems like a failure, until God steps in. And because God is so rich in his mercy, he's so rich in his grace, he forgives those who turn away from him and decides to, to keep providing opportunity for them to follow him. And so he uses this kingly line and he provides for them a king. That's when we come to the New Testament, where God steps into humanity and becomes flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. This is the promised king. This is the Messiah. This is the one who will lead Israel like God used to lead Israel. And finally, they have a perfect king. Finally, they're going to have God in the flesh leading them. And they know that there's victory in God. But they don't accept Jesus as king, do they? They don't. He lives a perfect life, performs miracles, leads them, and and they end up putting him on trial because he was not the king they wanted. Right in front of them, right in front of their eyes was God in the flesh. I wish I could see Jesus in the flesh. I can't, and I will one day, but they saw him. They had him, and they did not value what was in front of them. They did not value what they had. They wanted something less. They were fixated on their idea of a king. See, Israel at the time, they had this notion that that the king they wanted would be a king who would come and lead them in power and might. He would take down Rome and and bring Israel back to being this prominent nation where they're strong, mighty, and their laws are the decrees. And that's what they were looking for, but that's not the king that Jesus was. Jesus came in peace and in grace and in truth. He came bringing love. He came to save the world, not just decree over it. That's not what they were looking for. To them, Jesus was weak. If Jesus was really the promised king and the Messiah, then he wouldn't show up on a donkey. He'd show up on a horse. If he was really the promised king and Messiah, then he wouldn't take these beatings. He would fight us back. They had no idea how great a king they had in front of them. So then we come to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 is the scene where the Jews bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. And their their problem with Jesus, they tell Pilate, our problem is he claims to be king. And we know that by law, anyone who claims to be king is a problem, right, Pilate? Because Caesar's king, he's the king of Rome. And so it's a problem that Jesus is claiming to be king. And so he does this whole interview with Jesus in John chapter 18, and and he asks him, are you a king? Jesus' response is, my kingdom is not of this earth. Pontius Pilate didn't find anything wrong in Jesus. 
He didn't find anything that he did that was against the law or sinful or incorrect because he was perfect. And I think there was part of him that, that might, have, might have seen that he was king. And so he presents Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 39 and 40, he presents him to the Jews. He says to the Jews, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. This is kind of routine where around Passover they would present different criminals who were up for crucifixion and they would say, all right, Jewish people, choose someone who will be forgiven, someone who will not pay this price, someone who will be released today. This is custom for Passover. And so he presents to them, hoping, I think Pilate was hoping that they would not accuse this innocent man. He says, do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Notice he calls him his correct title. Do you, Israel, choose to release the king of the Jews? But they cry out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. When presented with the perfect king, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Israel people, instead of seeing what was in front of them, they not only chose someone else, they chose a murderer, a robber, someone who once freed will probably do this again. When they yelled out, give us a king, they were rejecting God. Here they yell out, give us Barabbas. And for a second time, they reject God. Regardless of whether they accepted it or not, Jesus is king. I want to make clear that Jesus is king. He will forever reign as king. And when they put him on a cross, he proved his power because he conquered the enemies of this world. On the cross, he took on all sin of all mankind, and so through their rejection, he has offered to the world to be co-heirs with him. He conquered sin on the cross completely by paying the price that we should pay. Then three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death. In the end, when he returns, he's going to conquer Satan. He's going to conquer all his enemies because Jesus is the king. And when he fights for us, none of the enemies of this world, none of the things that are danger to us that we battle are even close because he has overcome. And so presented in front of them was Jesus the king. They rejected him, but he will come back as king. And we can trust that Jesus is king. We know that he's king. We know that he's seated at the right-hand throne of God. We know that he intercedes for us. We know that he will return, and we know that his kingdom will come. And we, because of Israel's rejection, get to be part of that kingdom. My question today, church, for all of you, as we have seen Israel's shortcomings and failures, it's easy to judge in our hearts. How awful is that? How silly. You know, obviously with that poem in the beginning, we look at that child and we say, how could you give up a dollar for two quarters? It, it's kind of silly, but well, well he's, a, he's a kid. He didn't know better. We look at Israel and we can get fired up. How could they make this decision? How could they deny God as king? How can they deny Jesus as Messiah? Church, we have a tendency to do the same. I have a tendency of doing the same. Jesus has presented himself clearly through his word 
who he is, how great he is, and oftentimes I do not understand the value of what I have, but I trade it for something less because oftentimes my eyes are fixated on the wrong thing. My question for you today is who is your king? Consider this, who is your king? I don't want you to just think, well I know Jesus is my king, but consider in your life, who has rule over you? What has rule over you? For anyone in here who does not know Jesus, my first encouragement is you need to know the king. There is only one true king. There is only one way to salvation. Jesus claims I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except for him. And if you try anything else, it's going to end in destruction. God has presented to you life and life abundantly in him. Forgiveness of your sins. And and on the other hand, if you do not choose him, you will spend eternity separate from him in a place called hell. If you're in this room today and you do not know Jesus, we want you to know the king. We want you to know salvation that has only been achieved through him. And so please come to us and talk to us afterwards and and let us know if you have not received Jesus as your savior because we need you to know the king. There's no one else. And for us, church, us us believers who are are wrestling with this in our lives, I, I, I wanna put this out there that there's a lot of People and things that we place as king in our lives and we allow to rule over us. Uh, I want to make clear myself as a preacher, John Rossetti as a pastor, John Desiderio as a pastor, we are not your king. And I hope that in a church you never look at church leadership, your elders and pastors as, as the ones who rule over you. All we do is point to the one true king. We prayed today for President Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not your king. If you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you have a different kingdom. He is not your king. In your job, your boss who pays your bills, right? He's the one who who orders you around. He or she gives you your money and finances for living. They are not your king. Church, your king is Jesus Christ. The authority of your life, the one who directs you and guides you is Jesus himself. And and although we're called to submit to our governing authorities, we're called to submit to these people who the Lord has placed over us, they are not the final authority of our lives. We submit to the true King Jesus. Make sure you don't put anyone else in place or in the wrong throne because he's the one who deserves it. I have another question I want to pose for you. As, As we've seen Israel did not understand the value of what they had in front of them. Do you understand the value that you have in Jesus? Do you understand the benefits that you have of being in Christ? Oftentimes we lose sight of this. We forget that sin and death in our life has been totally conquered by Jesus. It's so easy to forget that because we continue in sin, right? We continue to sin. However, sin is not ruler of our life anymore. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have been set free. Sin is not your master. You are no longer slaves to sin, according to Romans 6, but you are now slaves to righteousness. You are his, and you have a new master. And so sin and death does not have to reign in your body. It doesn't. You don't have to fear it. You don't have to be consumed by it. You are forgiven. Live in that freedom, church. Live in that freedom. As a believer, you have joy and peace that nothing else in this world can give. 
You know that? Nothing else in this world, not even close, no money, no fame, no, no family, no health, nothing can give us joy and peace the way that Jesus can. We have that in him. We have true, unconditional love and relationship with God the Father. That's only through Jesus and he has given us true purpose in our lives, purpose to live for him, purpose to, to be used by him. I, I can't express enough how much of a privilege it is that I, I get to preach God's word. I mentioned in the beginning of the service, but church, I am unworthy. You are unworthy, but the Lord has shown great love on us and that he wants to use us to serve his kingdom. Let us not lose sight of the value of that. But let that be the motivation for seeking him and serving him and loving him deeper and giving him the praise. So often we don't understand the value of what we have and we trade it for less. Church, are you trading the good things that the Lord has given you for something less? Are you trading the forgiveness and freedom that you have in Christ for pleasures of the flesh? Are you trading sin and death that was con conquered for you and the condemnation that you no longer have to, have to deal with? Are you trading that for guilt and shame? Some of you here, I'm sure of it because I'm a similar way, you're probably feeling burdened by the guilt of your sin. Christ died so that you would not have that. And he cries out in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus do not be burdened. Do not trade the beauty of the gospel for something less like guilt and shame. Do not allow anxiety and worry to, to rule over you. Don't let hate and bitterness, which is a result of not fixating our eyes on Christ, result in these things. Do not let the greed of the things of this world be the thing that you trade Christ for. Am I sacrificing knowing Jesus and serving him for money? Am I sacrificing knowing and serving Christ Jesus for possessions? What about comfortability? That one hits home a little bit for me. I mentioned that struggle of being here on a Sunday morning and, and the word of God is being preached to me, yet my mind's focused on, I can't wait to get home and nap. I hope that's not you today. And if it is, come to the Lord. See the value of what he has for you. Oftentimes we trade it for something less, but church, we don't have to live in that. We don't have to keep doing that. Unlike Israel, who when offered opportunity after opportunity kept rejecting God, church, we at any time can confess our sins to God and he is faithful and just to forgive them. And we come to him, we fix our eyes on him and he will work in your life. So I have an encouragement, a final encouragement as we prepare to end. Church, let the cry of our hearts not be give us money or give us fame let the cry of our hearts not be, give us health or prosperity in things of the world. Let the cry of our hearts not be, Lord, give me, give me comfortability and, and family and, and love from others. Lord, instead, let the cry of my heart be, give us more of Jesus. Because sometimes seeking Jesus 
Having that cry in our heart, Lord, give us more of your son Jesus, is a dangerous cry because it will not lead to comfortability. Christ says in Philippians that it is not only for us to to believe in him, but we are called to suffer for his sake. And so when we seek the likeness of Jesus, when we ask God to give us more of Christ, sometimes it leads to suffering, and it leads to persecution, and it leads to hardship. But church, those things are so much more. Do we see the value of suffering? Do we see the value of being persecuted for Christ? Do we see the value of serving his kingdom? Paul says that this is the surpassing value knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let the cry of our hearts be, Lord, give us more Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, there is not a moment of my life that I don't need you. So easily, the pleasures of my flesh and the distractions of this world come into my life and take my eyes off of you and Lord I don't desire that and I pray that you work in my heart, you work in the heart of this church to be a people whose eyes are fixed on you. You are the king. You are the one who fought sin and death and won. You are the one who leads us in love and grace and truth. Don't let us turn to anything else, Lord. Don't let my heart turn to anything else, but instead, Lord, constantly lead me by your spirit to cry out, I need more of Jesus. Give us more of you, Lord. Use us to serve your kingdom for your glory. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for the word, Greg. Let's stand together for our dismissal now.